NFR Extra follows all your favorite cowboys, interviews legends of rodeo, and talks to the best of country music. Follow Nevada Caldwell, Ryland Bentley, and Steve Godert every week as they delve deep into the stories behind the road to gold in Vegas at the National Finals Rodeo. It's revealing, comedic, and sometimes emotional. Find it on Spotify or anywhere you listen to podcasts. NFR Extra, all dirt, all rodeo, all year. NFR Extra, moving on to episode 51 as we pass the 50 mark. And that's not all we're doing. We're changing some uh, changing some things up here. We we got a we've added a new teammate with Brylin and I, and uh, this is exciting. Good friend of ours uh, has been connected to us for quite a while. For those that go to Cowboy Christmas, have got to go to uh, Wrangler Rodeo Arena. Let's say Junior World Finals, Junior Far, or whatever it was we were doing in that arena about six years ago. Um, the guy that you'd hear that voice up there, well, he's he's on the show now. And I want a nice big warm welcome to Mr. Steve Goder. Welcome, Steve. Too kind, Envy. You're too kind. Thanks, brother. Awesome to be on, man. Appreciate it. You're you're, you're elevating us here a little bit by your your street cred or your rodeo cred. Uh, what do you so? You do rodeos. You do ranching. You do auctioneer. Got a little motorsports in there. Can you touch on your uh, your history of what you've been doing with that voice of yours? Yeah, that was, uh, it's kind of been a long journey, you know, um, fast moving train on a slow dream as Cody Jenks would say. But, uh, I, I went in the Marines after high school and I had kind of always wanted to do auctioneering and, um, kind of my main priority was auctioneering. And I just, I was like, man, I got to become better at speaking. And I didn't really know the best way to do that. And so I started announcing rodeos. Um, and that was back in like 2002, uh, that I, that I was pursuing that. And it's just been, you know, like you said, it's been everything. It's been, it's been rodeos. It's been showdios. It's been Feld Motorsports. It's been, you know, whatever I feel that would, uh, was something that I had interest in and something that I could pursue that would kind of help me get after my dreams or accomplish uh, the goals that I had set. I'd do it. So, and that's, uh, you know, totally honored to be here on the NFR extra podcast with you guys. So thanks for having me on. Brown and I have been kind of talking about this for a while and it's just something we worked and just the timing kind of worked out here and don't need to kind of, I think, beat it up too much. I think the fans are going to find out, you know, with you on this show, as we dive into these interviews, how much knowledge you have in this business. It's just, it's, you know, it'll show for itself or they'll hear for themselves. Right. And with that being said, uh, let's chat a little about who we got on this show for your first one. Mr. Chris Bowman, Houston rodeo and livestock show. No, talking with that guy, man, you, you you say that I know some stuff. It was, I mean, the amount of knowledge that he has through a vast field is just incredible. And it was uh, really cool to talk to. And I mean, the position that he's just taken of a CEO of the Houston Rodeo and Livestock Show this year uh, is pretty interesting. You know, obviously uh, this year didn't go according to plan, but, you know, visiting with him for what 2021 looked like, it, I mean, it's really, really encouraging. Yeah, and I I forgot to add Dr. Bowman, right, from... Uh, PhD, yeah. That was uh, yeah, I, fascinating, learned a lot there. Uh, interesting stuff about 
you know, from myself and understanding the rodeo business, the ranching world, the agriculture world, he really kind of puts it all together. And that that's, well, you'll listen on the show. And then, you know, then we, then we ramp it up a little bit. It's almost like, uh, you know, you go this one route and then you're like, all right, now we're going to get on a roller coaster, right? Clinton Anderson. What dude, Clinton Anderson. For those that don't know, horseman, I, I don't know. You, Steve, what, what, Clint Anderson, seriously. Yeah. You know, I mean, you've probably, if you didn't, if you've never seen him in Las Vegas, you've probably seen him on YouTube or on TV at some point in time. But I think the thing that, that, uh, was overlooked that I've never had an opportunity to really see is, is what a cool time that guy would be to hang out with, man. I don't know that you could hang with them, but, uh, I mean, it was definitely awesome to visit with them. And I mean, his whole thing was like, dude, you want to be number one? follow me because you're that's where i'm going so that was that was definitely a cool opportunity to visit with him and just the years of experience and travel and knowledge that he shared with us and and what he's doing now you know i mean kind of the different direction that he's taken from you know the years of being a a clinician and and being on the road to kind of his his pursuits now so that was definitely definitely a cool time this is our first one out of the box you're gonna love it fans uh just you'll just have to hear for yourselves stay tuned and listen to the rest of the conversations with uh, Dr. Chris Bowman and Clint Anderson, because we're just getting started with myself, Steve Goder, Ryland Bentley. Got a lot, a lot of guests lined up for the summer. Um, hope you enjoy this one. Episode 51. Here we go. Up next, Ryland Bentley's Rodeo News of the Week. This is Ryland's Bull, the Rodeo News of the Week. This week's Rodeo News of the Week, Pat Christensen takes a moment to talk with Cowboy Channel about the impact of COVID-19, Las Vegas, and the Wrangler National Finals Rodeo. Las Vegas is very important to professional rodeo. Professional rodeo is very important to Las Vegas. Since the mid-1980s, the Wrangler National Finals Rodeo, every December, has been a fixture in Las Vegas at the Thomas & Mack Center. This year, with everything that has happened with the COVID-19 pandemic, the coronavirus with all the events canceled one of the questions everybody's asking what's going to happen to the nfr we cannot answer that question yet but we can give you some thoughts we're joined tonight on pro rodeo tonight by pat christensen the president of las vegas events pat christensen the president of las vegas events las vegas opened up thursday how are things looking in, in las vegas how are things looking in your hometown is it starting to feel like normal well, it feels to be it feels good to be alive again. Yeah, I believe that. Um, Las Vegas took I saw a statistic, Pat. Tell me if this is true, that in the month of April total for the month, one hundred and six thousand visitors showed up in Las Vegas total for the month. We get more than that on one day at Cowboy Christmas. Is it was that accurate? Yeah. Wow. Uh, probably. I haven't heard. I haven't heard that. It, again, when you don't have a one of our hotels open, they're all closed. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the pictures behind you reflect Las Vegas's strong involvement. And ever since the mid-1980s, and you were there from the start in the Wrangler National Finals Rodeo, which has been so important to professional rodeo, but it's been so important to Las Vegas. Expand on that a little bit, please. Well, if you if you look back then for Las Vegas, in the month of December, it filled a huge gap and created a uh, an event that has has spurred the whole month of December. So those ten days uh, have grown from just a sold out event at Thomas and Mack Center 
to two or three times as many people coming for all types of uh, what we call the NFR experience. Uh, so the uh, the evolution of the and, and the partnership with the PRCA with the contestants has been a real special one for both. Pat, let me ask you the question that is on everybody's mind in the world of professional rodeo. And I don't you know, this situation has been so fluid. I don't know how much of an answer you can give. But what do you think about this year's national finals rodeo? Where are we with the Wrangler NFR for 2020? Well, I'm, I'm cautiously optimistic. Uh, there are a, a number of uh, benefits we have. Uh, the national finals rodeo has uh, one is we're in the month of December. So a lot of other professional sports, uh, major uh, Major League Baseball, the NFL, NBA, NHL, all will uh, are are in uh, you know all will be tested before uh, the NFR. So I think from that perspective, we're going to learn a lot about that, and I'm very really confident that we are going to have an, uh, a a full fledged National Finals rodeo versus a fifty percent or twenty percent. Uh, really confident that we're we are going to have that. The other thing was we've uh, we've got a group of uh, 45 events uh, and venues we put together that are preparing for the reopening uh, of Las Vegas and whatever guidelines uh, we might have, uh, we're prepared to uh, enact them and one to uh, ensure that our fans are safe while they're here. So does that mean possibly? more viewing parties or does that mean other areas to go in addition to the Thomas and Mac? Is that what you're talking about? Yeah. You know, some people are, you know, say they're month to month. Uh, there are a couple of months. Uh, there are a couple of weeks. I'm week to week. Yeah. It, it is so fluid. And, and the benefit that we have from putting this group together is that we have the uh, better, we have industry experts involved. So we're following it on a day-to-day basis. Uh, we'll be prepared as anyone is for the National Files Rodeo. You know, Pat, I have to confess, I've done dozens of interviews like this over the last couple of months, and I almost feel guilty asking people, what do you think about the future? Because this is so unprecedented. I hate that word. I'm so tired of it. Unprecedented at this point. Nobody really knows, and it it has to have been a mountain of a job for you folks at Las Vegas because there's so many events in addition to the NFR, obviously that Las Vegas events is involved with. Yeah, you know what's frustrating is waiting. I'm sure it is for our fans too, but for us, it's like we're uh, we're tortoises uh, moving towards a reopening here for all of our events. You know, Las Vegas. I mean, the NFR is just one of many, many major events that is in the same predicament here. Uh, but the the waiting is 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 the most challenging. The waiting and the uncertainty. Las Vegas is building that big, beautiful football stadium for the Raiders to move to town. Uh, there's so many questions about so many different avenues that I know you're involved in all of them. Yeah, again, we we all have, we're all in this together. Uh, the city has really come together, as it always has, uh, to address slowly, safely, how we are going to uh, reopen this and get back to normal. I think that's a great message. And, Pat, I appreciate your time. Las Vegas Events has been such a great partner with the Professional Rodeo Cowboys Association and the Wrangler National Finals Rodeo. And you were, Pat, real quick, you were there at the beginning in Vegas in the 1980s. Yeah, my first rodeo was the National Finals Rodeo, 1985. Wow. I was an assistant director at Thomas and Mack Center. So, yeah, it's uh, 
uh, again, it is, uh, I don't, I, I obviously in this city, there is, you know, we do, uh, I mean, we do hundreds of major events. There is none, and this is just me who's been there for a long time, the whole city. There isn't an event that is more special to this city than the National Finals Rodeo. Pat Christensen from Las Vegas Events, thank you. You're welcome. One under 20 of the best cowboys and barrel racers rode into Las Vegas last December and left $10 million richer. The chase for 2020 has already begun, and all champions are hungry for gold. Be sure to follow your favorite cowboys, barrel racers, and local rodeos all season long. It all leads to one place, the Wrangler National Finals Rodeo. Learn more at NFRExperience.com. This is the NFR. This is Vegas. Hi, I'm world champion Jet Johnson, and this is NFR Extra. On today's show, we have Chris Bowman, the new president and CEO of the Houston Livestock Show and Rodeo. The Houston Rodeo has no peer. They average over 2 million fans a year. All the top contestants compete over 21 days, and it is easier to recite who is not performed in the massive 65,000-seat stadium. He joined the Houston Rodeo in 2017, where he managed the livestock show and horse shows, educational and commercial exhibits, donors, auctions, sponsorships, grants, and scholarships. There's not much that Chris hasn't done. He worked with 46 of the 108 volunteer committees. Pretty big job. I can only imagine how much bigger it is now. We're going to find out that and a whole lot more. Welcome to NFR Extra, Dr. Chris Bowman from Rodeo Houston. How are you? How you doing? I'm doing pretty good. Good to be with y'all. <laughs> well, thank you for joining us. This is uh, our pleasure for sure. Yeah. What, uh, could you tell us a little bit about the history of Rodeo Houston uh, Livestock Show and how that has grown into the extraordinary monster that it is now? Sure. Yeah. And so it, uh, we started in 1932. Uh, the, the, the speech that I give all the time and is that the most interesting part about the Houston Livestock Show and Rodeo is the first year it lost money. And so uh, we, we actually, so they had to kind of regroup and make a plan. But, but the whole thought behind it was a number of cattlemen in the Houston area said, you know what we've noticed in the early 1900s or mid, you know, you went in the 1930s is a lot of folks uh, in the cattle market, there's a livestock show around it. At the time, that was Chicago, Denver, and Fort Worth. And so we should start one here. And believe it or not, in Houston, that was this was cattle cow-calf country for sure. Uh, lots of Brahmin-influenced cattle, that, that kind of thing. And so that's what really kind of got the ball rolling. And then so over time, we were having a show. Uh, we added a rodeo. Uh, and then piece by piece, it started picking up. And then somebody thought, you know, we should have an entertainer. Uh, and so we added an entertainment piece. And so from there, it's just become a phenomenon, quite frankly, because of the, the volunteer base. Uh, you know, when you, we have 34,000 volunteers, of course, we didn't have that many back then. But, but when you have that, those passionate people, and they are, I mean, they are so great to work with. You just, as a, you know, we have a staff volunteer relationship that's outstanding. And the work happens year round. And the 34,000 volunteers are really, to me, uh, what takes it from good to great, so to speak. And so over time, it just kind of kept growing, right? Uh, we moved facilities, we changed facilities, that we had the Astrodome, now we're in the NRG Park in the center and, and the stadium. And, it, and no matter what we do, 
uh, people become more engaged and people want to be a part of it. And so it's just grown and grown and grown. And to me, what's interesting today about the Houston Livestock Show and Rodeo, uh, one significant kind of aha change or as we go over time is we think about 1932 and going to the 40s and 50s and 60s. So many people were connected to agriculture. They, they were from a farm or a ranch uh, or had some sort of connection to a farm or ranch. And with today's world, particularly in urban Texas, a lot of folks just don't have that opportunity. For, so for us, our growth it, uh, as, as connected to our mission is about promoting agriculture to an audience that may not be that familiar with it. And so we take that very seriously. Obviously, it's a destination. It's, it, it's the, in, in addition to the volunteers, the other piece, and I'm getting long-winded because I get passionate about this, so sorry, Steve, is that, is that our community is just so engaged. I mean, it truly is a community event. Uh, and seeing how the community responds to it, then you throw, as it grows, and, and you see this rodeo, this agriculture piece, and then you throw in ed, educational programs and the scholarship piece and just everything happening around there and what we give. I mean, it's, it's a giving organization. Uh, it's just, it's like all the stars align here at the Houston Hotstock Show and Rodeo. So, I, okay, I got a question on that. And you kind of touched on it a little bit. Can you break down the components, you know, the, of the rodeo, rodeo Houston and kind of the, the hierarchy of it, right? Like just on a, and, and how it contributes to the brand because it's so well known. And yeah, yeah, sure. So the, the way the way I talk about it a lot, and, and before I moved into this position as CEO as the chief mission officer, so I had everything uh, in, in my world that was mission related. And so at, at the end of the day, what a lot of people don't don't realize is this is a nonprofit organization. It's not a for profit. It is a mission driven organization, like any nonprofit. And, and, and so our, our mission is to promote agriculture. That's, that's the core part of the mission. That's how it starts, promoting agriculture. We do that through a livestock show, a horse show, a rodeo. We do that through educational pieces around the grounds as well, obviously. And so, but that's our core. And we do it uh, through our mission, through a 20-day experience. And so with that 20-day experience, we're promoting rodeo, we're promoting Western heritage, which is a big piece of it, right? Uh, is that celebration of the Western heritage. Uh, and then and then it's our educational piece that that we're going to give back at the end of the year. We're going to give back to the community and scholarships and grants and assistantships. And this year, even with uh, the challenges we had this year, we, we surpassed five hundred million dollars, uh, which, again, is exactly what our mission is about. Five hundred million dollars in giving. That's pretty awesome. Wow. That's yeah, that's intense. So uh, I, I, I wanted to ask you this when you're talking about the origin of rodeo Houston of the livestock show and rodeo about the livestock showing component of that how many sales how many auctions are held during that 20-day period uh for the Houston livestock show and rodeo yeah so you kind of have to split, split it up in different ways because we have so we have junior auctions so we will have over uh, over 35,000 livestock entries in our show so it's not only largest rodeo in the world it's the largest livestock show as well and, and so uh, we, we have a junior show, which most people, you know, the 4-H and FFA kids come and participate. A lot of people are familiar with that. From there, uh, or, or as a part of that, we'll have a steer auction, a swine auction, a lamb and goat auction, and a poultry auction. And the reason I'm listing them so I can count them together, so I can take, give, you, give you the right answer, right? And so and we also have a wine auction at the first part of the show that's connected to our wine competition. Uh, and we also have a, an all breeds auction. The first part of our show, what a lot of people don't know is it's open for producers. Uh, so they will bring bulls and uh, uh, heifers, uh, replacement heifers in. So the first part of the show, we'll do that. 
a lot of our first week too, during our open part of the show, uh, we have a number of, uh, of uh, what's the right word? A number of just breed association uh, sales. So, so the Brahmin Association will have a sale and so forth. And then another piece is our school art piece. Uh, we have a school art auction for kids that, uh, that do the, the school art project in school. So uh, it's hard to say the exact number, uh, because it changes year to year. But yeah, we have a lot of auctions, all of the, we have a ranching and wildlife auction, uh, just a lot of pieces there that all contribute uh, to the educational programs uh, piece of the show, which includes giving back to our exhibitors, obviously, as well. Wow. It's like the Super Bowl of livestock, right? I mean, that's in, in agriculture, to me, as I can gather. Yeah, a lot of people describe it that way. And sure, yeah, it's, uh, we're so blessed in Texas. We have a number of major livestock shows, as you all know. And, uh, but yes, uh, we're, we're definitely proud of ours. So prior to becoming the CEO um, of the Houston Livestock Show and Rodeo, and you talk about the passion um, for educating or allowing the opportunity for uh, agriculture for those that haven't uh, been exposed to that, You've got uh, quite the background um, with the 4-H and youth development too prior to this. Is that correct? Yes, sir. So, uh, sure. So before I came to the Houston Livestock Show and Rodeo, which was in 2017, uh, from 2008 to 2017, I served as the Texas 4-H Youth Development Program Director, which is a part of the Texas A&M system. I uh, worked as a professor there uh, as well uh, from 2003 forward. And so I grew up as a 4-H'er. I grew up in Brazos County, which is about 80 miles down the road, which is actually, is actually where Texas A&M University is. Uh, my dad was a beef cattle professor. My granddad on my mom's side was a, was a swine professor. So you'll never guess what livestock projects we showed growing up, right? Yeah. We, had, we showed a lot of cattle and we showed a lot of swine. And so that, that's really what, in my opinion, uh, having, that, having a family atmosphere of being at the barn and showing livestock and hauling hay and you know all those things we do as a family uh, certainly helped prepare me for where I am today and yeah there's no question running the 4-H youth development program was uh, one of the real highlights of my life uh, growing up in that program and then being able to serve in that position for almost 10 years was great and one of the things I learned there is one of the things we brought to the Houston Livestock Show and Rodeo uh, is that today's kids are a lot different uh, and today's society is different not every child uh, can have a, a goat in the backyard or a steer uh, because of where they live and subdivision regulations and so forth. So uh, just like 4-H, uh, and we work closely with 4-H and FFA uh, with those exhibitors, we've opened up where we have agrobotics contest, food challenge. We're trying to veterinarian science. We try to provide opportunities for young people on the exhibitor side uh, where perhaps that, that you may not have, you may not have a place or a barn, but you can still participate uh, in, in something regarding agriculture and come to our show. So that's really important. That's a real passion of mine is, is having, providing opportunities to young people. That's really kind of my background. I've always described myself as an opportunity architect for young people. And for that matter, for, for people, now that I'm in this role, what kind of opportunities can we provide for folks to do what they want to do? In Texas, what the analogy I use is how do we provide their Friday night lights? Oh, wow. So I, I got a weird analogy for you. That's kind of lewd into this question, right? So you, you, you were on a, you are on a campus, obviously college. Um, I was on the campus for 15 years. And one of the things I learned working a lot with the presidents was the college athletics is kind of the front doorstep to the schools, right? Uh, just that they'd always say that for the marketing purposes of how they could brand those universities. Thinking of that, when I look at rodeo, when I think of everything that we're talking about here with livestock, agriculture, everything like that, it's almost like rodeo is kind of that, 
as as college athletics is to a university at the doorstep, but sometimes it seems like rodeo serves as that kind of marketing purpose to kind of introduce people to where you can back into agriculture or livestock and kind of get an understanding of that. How important has it been uh, being a part of the PRCA with Rodeo Houston and now being back in the fold uh, and shaking up the money dollars at the beginning of the season, which I love. I think it just has really created this nice blip on the right radar to start things out. How important is that? Yeah, so just to go back to the first part of your question, you're exactly right. We do see ourselves as a voice of agriculture. And over a 20-day time period, we're able to reach 2.4 million folks in a, in a, in a, in a normal year, uh, if, if there is such thing anymore. And so obviously this year is a little different. But, uh, uh, but de- definitely we see ourselves as that, as that front door, a voice of agriculture, an opportunity to teach folks. One of the things we, we say a lot is, is how do we diversify what we're offering to bring people on the grounds? So roughly half of the 2.4 million are actually going to attend and go into the stadium, which means the other half don't. They're on the grounds, and so we're trying to provide them opportunities outside of the stadium uh, that would be of interest to them as well. And so, and the reason I bring that up is because you're right. A lot of folks will come on site because maybe they're interested in the bull riding event, right? Or the bull, or maybe they're interested in a specific entertainer, or they're interested in going to fun on the farm, or visiting, or eating a corn dog for that matter. Uh, which are pretty tasty. And, and, so, uh, and so saying that, our job is why they're there to help them understand what our mission is really about and how we promote agriculture. And, and we, we think every year we watch what other people are doing, we get ideas, we think through that and try to come up with more creative ways uh, to engage, engage the audience uh, in doing so. So back to the PRCA. It's so great to be back at PRCA and certainly it's been great to get to know, uh, to get to know George uh, and, and his leadership. We just feel like what the PRCA does and what we do, we're, we're aligned on so many fronts, right? Uh, it's important for us to celebrate our rodeo athletes, and that includes the people and the animals, right? And so all, all that being said, we, we feel like we're sharing the same audience, and we have a unified voice of promoting the industry, and that's very important to us. Mm. Thank you for that answer. You bet. Are we doing okay? Fantastic. Okay, good. I, I don't want to brag, but I do have to say I was uh, on a university f- platform as well for about eight years, but that was just trying to get through community college myself. Got so it. That way I can relate to you guys too. Yeah, so, some people take up residency there. We get it. Yeah. 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 Felt good about it. Yeah, interesting, Steve, is I mean, universities are, are a plethora of business, you know, and, and education, how they mix. And, uh, you know, with education creates confidence. And it just, it's such a way to, um, well, grow business. And I just, I mean, listen to, to Dr. Bowman talk. I mean, it's just, it's fantastic. And his passion, when you come across individuals like himself, uh, the, the youth really benefit from that. So are, are, are there extension opportunities for kids that you were make, that you were talking about there that, you know, like you get some, somebody from inner city that goes to the Houston livestock show and rodeo and they decide they want to do something. They want to get involved somehow and uh, be a part of 4-H or FFA or whatever it may be. Are there extension opportunities for those kids that can't have an animal in their residence area? Do you guys provide some form of opportunity uh, for kids to expand on that? Yeah, it, so we, our relationship is with the 4-H County Extension Agents and the Ag Science Teachers. And so if a, if a young person comes to our show and they have interest, what we try to do is promote them back to Texas 4-H, Texas FFA, so they can find their local club or chapter. 
Uh, and so, and we have, we've got days where we'll emphasize and have folks from certain school districts or schools come in and, and do some things. Uh, so yeah, we try to connect them back to there because really that's, that those agents and ag teachers are our, our front door, so to speak, to ensure that the kids are getting the proper education and they're doing uh, the work that they need to be doing in order to come to our event and, and do something special. We also have uh, a junior rodeo committee, actually, at the Houston Livestock Show and Rodeo. So we have local kids that uh, we're bringing up uh, in hopes that uh, they'll, they'll join another committee. So that's a good front line for us, too, to develop young leaders to be a part of our program. So th those are kind of the two ways, I guess, we would, uh, the best way to, to address that. So let's uh, we'll switch gears to current times. It's been brought up a couple of times, and obviously we're all living in this right now. Uh, when was the first time you heard about COVID-19 and what, what, what were you thinking, Chris? With sure. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the first time we, we, so we were like anybody else, when you have a big event, you're, you're watching the world to see what's going on. And, and I, I would say when we got back from the, from the Christmas holiday, uh, kind of first of January, it, it was, it was on our radar for some of us, it was on our radar a little bit anyway, but I mean, I guess when we came back first of January, we really started kind of watching what was going on. And it was at that point within the first couple of weeks where we engaged a number of folks within the Houston Medical Center. As you know, Houston is known for its medical center. We have a ton of expertise in our area, lots of great doctors and health professionals and experts at different universities and systems there. So we were able to engage some of our folks. We also had a one of our vice presidents, uh, which is uh, one of our volunteers as an officer of the show, uh, was is a medical doctor. So we started sitting down and talking about things. There's no question about just kind of watching how things were going and what did this mean and uh, what uh, what we started talking pretty specifically about what's that going to look like here in 30 days or 60 days. So uh, yeah, first of January. So uh, okay, so when you were in the middle of your rodeo when you canceled, right? I, it, what were the challenges of doing this? Cause man, that's a huge event. And I just, I can't even wrap my mind around what you, what you guys had to go through to do that. Sure. No, it was, it was tough. Uh, and, and so by that point, by the time the show started the first of March, I mean, there, there was no question we, we were, we were giving, we were doing daily briefings. Uh, we, we were talking every day cause we, we started, obviously it, the spread had started in the, in the country. And so we started to see that and, so we were doing analysis daily uh, and, and working with, again, the, those same experts, working with the community officials, because, I mean, it's important to point out that at, at any large gathering, it's, it's really about the safety and well-being of our guests, right? And so as much as we want to do uh, all we want to do and get our 20 days in, at some point, we, we have to analyze what's happening in the world. And so... When, as, as we were watching, uh, and uh, again, daily uh, check-ins, and at the same time, we had adopted within the first week of the show, actually even before that, we had already made the decision to increase sanitation. Uh, we, we increased our cleaning teams, uh, some of our committees that work on, on uh, safety. I mean, we, we had bulked up, uh, and we were, doing our, we were doing the best we, best we can. And one of the things to point out, too, is that Every decision we made, we were making it based on the best interest of our guests. And then at the same time, we were following the science at the moment and what the regulations were, which was hand washing, sanitation, you know, all those things that, that we were hearing at the time. So we were following all of that. 
Uh, and so, and then of course we got to the day where there was a, a local uh, case. Uh, and, and so once we knew there was a local case uh, that wasn't associated with any international travel, uh, we, we knew we had, uh, we, we knew we had a lot to, to kind of consider. And of course, working with the city and working with the county, uh, uh, the, the decision was made for us to, to shut down. So what challenges did it bring? Sorry, I didn't answer the second part. Oh, in the that. heat. Yeah. Uh, I'm sorry. Go ahead, Steve. Sorry. I, I mean, just how hard was that when you're in the middle of yeah, the sure. Houston Livestock Show and Rodeo and you're like, hey, we got it. We got to do it. Yeah. I mean, it was the toughest. I mean, I can tell you it was the toughest decision uh, and the toughest action that any of us, I think, at the upper management level. At that time, I was the chief mission officer. And uh, this is the toughest decision we've ever had to make in our professional careers. Uh, and, 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 and knowing, uh, and of course, once the shutdown happened, then the decisions become, okay, now what do we do? Uh, and so we do have a crisis communication plan. We have a crisis plan uh, that uh, we have in place. And so we, we immediately went into action. And uh, it, was a, it was a long day uh, that it was not something that, we, we won't ever have to do again, but we, 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 made, we, we did what we needed to do to get through the event. Uh, and so like anything else, when something like that first happens, there's a lot of uncertainty, there's a lot of questions, but, but the minute you, you kind of understand what, you just start focusing on what's next. And the goal was, uh, based on the order, uh, the goal was to evacuate the facility by the end of the day. We had a couple of shows that were going on that we were allowed to finish. Uh, and there were a couple of uh, move-ins that were happening at the time that we had to, which was the toughest part. People had just moved in uh, to move them out. And then we just had to put an exit strategy together. And we over-communicated. Uh, we were as transparent as we could be. And, um, and, and so, yeah, you just, you just go into reaction mode and just make it happen. We learned a lot. Our volunteers stepped up, as you might imagine, on-site and off-site uh, to really help us facilitate through the day. Uh, but it's a tough day. I mean, there's no question. We will be back with Chris Bowman, the new president and CEO of the Houston Livestock Show and Rodeo. Following the break, we talk about what's in store for the Houston Rodeo post-pandemic and more. Each year at Cowboy Christmas, more than a quarter million country western shoppers mingle with NFR contestants, Flint Rasmussen, and the best junior cowboys and cowgirls in the world. There's no place in sports where your rodeo heroes find time to meet and greet their fans 9 to 5 every day. Cowboy Christmas. It's shopping, live music, rodeo, and so much more. Book your reservations and find out more at NFRExperience.com. Cowboy Christmas. It's all here. Wherever you listen to the NFR Extra podcast, whether it be on iTunes, Spotify, iHeart, Google Play, or even YouTube, hit that subscribe button so you don't miss an episode. And let us know what you think of this episode or any episode by leaving a comment. Hi, I'm world champion Jacob Scrawley, and you're listening to NFR Extra. We are talking to Dr. Chris Bowman from the Houston Livestock Show and Rodeo. Each year, more than 35,000 volunteers contribute 2.1 million total hours committing their talent and money to the Houston rodeo. You know, I, I always, I just, I always try to stay optimistic and practical at the same time with things. And I look at that. There's so many discussions we've had on this podcast about this, right. And, and being very relevant at this time, because everything to us feels like 
uh, being at the NFR right now when we do our media because everything is so everyone's so focused, hyper focused on everything. Every day that you do something, so even like when we put this podcast out, people will want to want to kind of like listen to you and all these things. But there's also it seems like a lot of opportunities coming, hopefully beyond this curve and getting out of this thing yeah. where we've learned a lot about what we can do things better, right? Like just how how we react to something or what we do for the business. So I mean, like just hearing you talk about this, I think there's a lot of well, I think it'll have you guys in a better place going forward. I'm just being optimist, you know? Yeah, that's so the key hashtag optimism, right? That is exactly where we are. And as we start to focus on 2021, that's exactly where our heads are. Last night, we had our, we had our first ever meetings, our, our board of directors meeting and our membership meeting virtually, right? I mean, those are the times we live in. We're doing this virtually. Uh, and so th there are things that we can learn from it. And, and Steve asked a question about our auctions. I want to circle back to that because we weren't able to have our auctions live, uh, but believe it or not, we had virtual auctions. We generated over 7.5 million for exhibitors uh, through those virtual auctions. We never, I mean, that's, that's pivoting, that's adapting quickly, and that's responding, uh, our donors and our committees and our volunteers responding with our staff to pull that off. And so the point is, Wow, that is unbelievable in the times that we were in. And so I think you make a good point about it. We, we have learned things. We've learned a lot. Uh, we, there are things that we can do better. Uh, and I do believe there's opportunities in front of us. We're optimistic that we're going to have a full-fledged 2021 show. Will it be different? Probably. I mean, will, will there be some different protocols we have in place? Absolutely. I, I'll tell you, anytime you go through you know, trauma like that or you go through uh, just, just a crisis like that, I believe you come out of it better. Uh, I believe our relationships uh, are better with our partners. I mean, I, I believe that, that we are, knowing that we've gone through that, uh, the next challenge won't be as much of a challenge and we'll work together to get through it. And I'm just so proud of how our community responded. I'm proud of how our, our staff, our volunteers, our executive committee, how we, we just, you know, we, we put our boots on and we went to work. and. As we start to come out of this, which I hope we are, and as we start to focus for 2021, I do believe we'll be better. I believe our product will be better. I believe we'll have more engagement than ever before. And I'm, I'm confident, optimistically confident, uh, confident that we're going to have a great 2021 show. Nice. That's uh, one thing, if you can try to get some positive from this whole entire experience uh, with the promotion of agriculture, is it was unbelievable how many people realized how disconnected they were from agriculture. And, you know, I got to get a garden. I got to do something. I got to figure out a new way to do this. So, I mean, with that being said, I think the importance of agriculture um, and what you guys do at the Houston Livestock Show and Rodeo, as far as allowing the opportunity for people to see how important that is, uh, you know, it's not just all that stuff isn't grown in a store. So yeah. that's, I think a, that'll be interesting to see how people react for 2021. Yeah. Lots of folks are having, uh, are starting new hobbies, right? And some of yeah. them are gardening or whatever. So it, that has been kind of cool to watch. In addition, we started our, uh, when the show shut down, we had a couple of weeks to kind of react. We started an ag chat on our rodeo page on Facebook every day at 11. And our first one was gardening. And so, and we've talked about food. We've connected uh, cooking to, that's a raw product, right? And so, yeah, we, we've expounded on that too in, in order to connect to our mission. Uh, but yeah, I'm hopeful that sticks. And you're right. I think it is something that people have a greater appreciation of uh, when we go through something like this. And, and again, I, I'm, I'm a big believer if you, you find the good in every situation. This, is, this has been 
This has been hurtful for all of us. We've all experienced pain. We've all been impacted by COVID-19 within our families, our communities, our industries. Uh, but once we come out of it, uh, I'm hopeful that we can be better. Wow. Sorry. Uh, amazing. I got to tell you, this was, uh, it's just a learning curve of how the magnitude of this event, the magnitude of what's going on in the world and where you guys are right in the middle of this. I, um, you know, the conversations we've had with some contestants like Caleb Schmidt, for instance, I don't know if you know Caleb or not, but, um, he was literally in the middle. He was on his horse ready to go. And it came about, you know, it was his emotions and time. I mean, he's kind of a low key guy, but like some of the individuals just where they were and what they were thinking. Um, it's just, it's never ending. There's going to be books, there's going to be movies about this forever uh, coming out of this. And uh, I, I've told a lot of folks, you know, again, because of my background, I get a chance to talk to young people a lot. And, and I've told all of them, keep a journal, because we're going to reflect back on 2020 and, and be able, and we're going we're gonna to talk and learn from it. Uh, just all the, that you are living in it, so learn from it. Because uh, I, I do, I think we'll look back like we look back on different challenging times in our world. And this is, this is going to be one of those years where we'll do that for sure. Absolutely. With being so involved in the youth organization, could you share a little more on your journey of becoming a doctor? I mean, the scholarship programs and so many of those things go into education and you have a great one. I think that's important to share. Yeah, sure. So, so because I grew up showing and, and uh, going to the Houston Livestock Show and Rodeo, uh, we, we both my, my two brothers and I both, uh, uh, between all the shows and, and raising livestock projects, showing the county fair, we were able to to save dollars and, and go to college, and uh, and so and and including receiving several you know different scholarships as you might expect, and so and coming from a family of educators, as I just mentioned, at, at, you know at the beginning of my dad's background, my grandfather's background, education is very important to our family, uh, and so going going to Texas A and M, uh, well I'll be honest with you, in, in my family growing up in College Station, there wasn't any other choice. So so knowing that you know just setting that tone, uh, uh, we went to Texas A and M and. When I finished at A&M, uh, I became a county agent, actually, and worked with 4-H kids in Bell County, Belton Temple Clean, shout out to those, uh, to Bell County. Uh, and so, uh, got to be an educator there, had the opportunity to come back to school at A&M, uh, which is where I met my wife in grad school. Uh, and so, uh, because of that, education is very important to us. And we're, we're big believers in, in you can create your own future if you're willing to learn. And, and that's just kind of where I am, you know? And, and so I started as an animal science major, a traditional kind of livestock animal science guy. And then my doctorate is in ag ed because what became more important to me over time is uh, the philosophy of agriculture education and, and how we use education as a tool to better ourselves. Uh, and so from a, from a social point of view versus a more of a scientific view in animal science. So that's kind of, that's where I got, I'm a, I tell our team all the time that, you know, the day you, you decide not to move your learning line is, is the day that you're probably not going to be as, as good as what you were. And so we're lifelong learners. All these examples we've talked about here are all things that we can learn from. Uh, and that's just kind of the way we approach the day. So to me, it's, it's perfect uh, because my personal passions align so much with our organizational mission and purpose. And so when you see those things happen, I, I think that's where the magic happens for, for individuals that are looking to find themselves in their careers. So we filled our questions, but I got, I, you know, I got some still just while we got your time. I, so it's always interesting how people fall into positions, right? You know, some people, they just, they've, they've, since they were a kid, they've looked at to want to do this. Like if it's a pro athlete, they've always wanted to be, you know, riding at the NFR, right. Or something like that. 
how did you see yourself? I mean, this whole rodeo Houston thing, how did you see this down the road or did this just kind of part of an evolution process for your career? Is that, I mean, how did, you know, it's, it, I, you remember when, when you're asked when you're young in your career, where do you want to be in five years? And you look back on that after the five years, you kind of giggle. Right. And so I, I, I uh, I'll tell you when I graduated high school, I wanted to be a college professor. That's just what my goal was. That's what my granddad was, what my dad was. I knew that business. That's what I wanted to be. And so then I, I got to be that. And so you're like, okay, well, uh, and, and it was great. I mean, it was really good. And so, uh, but then you start seeing, I mean, at least for me, and I know everybody's different. I, I started seeing working with students and graduate students uh, in that role. I, I started asking myself, where could I have a, better, a bigger impact? Uh, and, you know, as, as we grow as human beings, where, where do you, where, where can you have, where, where do you feel like you can influence more lives in a positive way? And so when the 4-H program position came open and I thought, man, Texas 4-H, 600,000 kids in the program, 30,000 volunteers, you know, 60,000 club members. I'm like, man, that would be awesome. And so I, I went into that position, um, knowing that, that, working with young people is something I've been passionate about as well. And I loved it. It was great. And then I thought, well, I'm never going to leave this job. I love this job. And then, <laughs> and so then I got a call, uh, as most, uh, as most of you, if you know me at all, you know that Joel Callie and I, uh, the previous president and CEO are really good friends. He's a mentor to me and Joel, uh, I've known Joel since I was 15 when he came to and was a graduate student actually. And so he called and said, Hey, would you be interested in, in doing this? And, uh, I got to thinking, wow, so I'm doing this. Now uh, I, can, I can go here in an urban community. And we were talking about how to promote the mission and agriculture and how important that is to me. And I'm thinking, man, what a logical next step. So I got into that job. I'm like, man, this is awesome. And so uh, it, just, it just goes from there, right? And so when, when I got the call to, to uh, and it was offered this position, I, you know, it just seemed right. It, like, I, like I said a second ago, it just, uh, it just seemed to align with, with what I want to do and what I want to be about and just couldn't be more pleased to, to be in it. Uh, it for me, I guess if you ask me, what do they all have in common? Right. Well, to me, they all have education in common. You know, there's an educational piece. It's a different piece. You know, I, I used to write grants to the Houston Livestock Show and Rodeo when I was running 4-H and when I was a professor at A&M. And so now I'm on the other side of that. Uh, but, but the other thing that, that I feel like is important and what I'm really passionate about as well is, I love, I love volunteer organizations. Uh, I, I love it when people come together because they have the same interest. Uh, and, you know, the thing is, you know it's personal to them because with volunteers, they're doing it out of the goodness of their heart. And so it's really, to me, uh, it, it's that alignment of, of focus. And so for us at our show, we have volunteers that are passionate about agriculture. We have volunteers that are passionate about Western heritage. They're passionate about the Houston community and they're passionate about education and scholarships. And so we, we put them, we try to find where those fits are within their bucket uh, based on their interest. And, and then, as I like to say, that's where the magic happens. That, that, that's where we, we take it to a different level. And so, uh, I don't know, I, you know, I'm asking about career advice all the time. I, my, I just remember what my grandfather told me a long time ago. If you can go to work every day and leave every day and it didn't seem like work, you're probably in the right job. Mm -hmm. And so for me, I've been very fortunate to, in my career, every position along the way, uh, I have felt like this is where I'm supposed to be. And doesn't mean there's not challenges, as you all know, but it's just what I enjoy doing. Yeah, that's good. Wow. What, uh, 
what do you see the trend for 4-H? Do you see it kind of steady or inclining or declining as far as um, new members, existing members? Um, just as, like you said, you know, this is kind of a different, different time that we live in in general, but also kids seem so disconnected um, from that. But I mean, 600, you said 600,000, I think on a state level, like that's a fairly tremendous amount of kids in an organization, but yeah. Yeah. And the Texas 4-H program, I always, it was kind of classified as two categories. One is, is outreach and working with schools and after school programs, and then the club member piece as well. And so both those numbers are, are very important. And both of them, by the way, lead the nation and FFA's in the same boat, I think, uh, in terms of leading the nation, Texas FFA, I should say, I think both of them are, are very uniquely positioned uh, to, in, in my opinion, continue to grow and to continue to get more kids involved because a, a, a lot of people think of them as agriculture youth organizations, but they're much bigger than that. Just like our show is, it's about life skill development. It's a, it's about uh, learning leadership. And I, I think, you know, from where I sit, those two organizations, uh, and I'm biased, no question, I'm very biased, but, but they're the very best at really developing life skills and leadership with an appreciation of, of the world that they live in. Both of them's mottos and, and kind of, I guess, foundation is built around making people better and, and getting better. So I, I think they continue to, divert, to diversify their portfolio, just like we do, uh, from, from archery competitions to public speaking. I mentioned the the vets, the veterinarian science, veterinary science piece. So many kids want to be a veterinarian. And so you, you have to build programs where kids are interested. And it's funny because when I was running 4-H, I, I really, I fought when I first got in, like, we got to get these kids off the screen time, right? We hear, used, to, used to hear screen time all the time. And then, and then, you know, sometimes you have to realize when you're going to lose that battle. And so then I started saying, okay, well, how do you, how do you implement a program where screen time is to your benefit, right? And so, uh, so much of 4-H and FFA to me are also focused on science, engineering, and technology, uh, which includes technology, obviously, and, and, and the idea of how do you use technology to better yourself. And just think of agriculture for a minute. I mean, you know, I, I say this all the time, too. If, if, you're a, if you're a farmer or a rancher, you're using technology that you wouldn't have even believed was possible 20 years ago. <laughs> you know, that, I mean, just, just think about that for GPS mapping or whatever the case may be, uh, there's some really cool stuff out there. And so for me, uh, a lot of folks, when I get questions about, oh yeah, I could be in 4-H, but I live in the city. I'm like, well, no, you can be in 4-H or you can be in FFA. You just don't know the avenue to get there. To me, that's the biggest hurdle. And You know, it's like, uh, kind of just touch on this real quick, but when you talk about that with technology and with, with the kids, I mean, you know, Steve and I are dads, uh, Brylin, she's still got a ways and she can- she I'm can, a kid. <laughs> she yeah she's she's somebody's kid yep i still claim the kid logo that is me i personally absolutely loved every bit of being a part of 4-h and ffa i mean one of our favorite programs was you know you'd get on your computer and you'd actually track every part of your project from right. the start of it to the middle of it what your goal was at the end and you had to set up those projects that way and that was the one thing that really changed probably in my high school years is implementing to the technology in those status ways to learn to use it the correct way yeah the, the, just the power of record keeping and a lot of folks don't do that anymore but yeah i mean or, or that's what they struggle with and the other struggle for a lot of kids is just how to put your time together i mean to me that's the real struggle in life i mean i'll just tell you is, is this work-life family balance and how do you prioritize how do you do that and i think both those both those organizations prepare you well for that yeah no doubt all right well this has been awesome chris i got one one more question 
One more question. Uh, growing up showing cattle, what was your breed that you would uh, defer to? Or did you have a, like a family breed that was like, hey, man, we're, we're Hereford guys or Angus or whatever it was? Uh, so a good question. Uh, so we, we raised Brahmin influenced cattle. Uh, that's what we raised here. Uh, we raised some, some Brahmin, Brangus, those kinds of things. Uh, we, we were pretty much though, I mean, we would show some of our own, but we were just trying to find the, the best projects that we could find. Uh, and, and so, uh, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I spent a lot of time judging shows over my career. I don't do that as much anymore. Uh, but you know, good cattle are good cattle. So I, any, any, uh, any breed for me is a good breed. Uh, they all have their unique characteristics. And so, uh, yeah, I don't know. That, I mean, that's what we grew up showing, but but we we actually showed a little bit of everything. Thank you, Dr. Bowman. This is uh, this has been fascinating. Yeah, good, good. But yeah, thank you for coming on the show. Clearly, this has been a great time. Steve, anything? Brian? Houston Livestock Show and Rodeo has a great future. Yeah, they do. Awesome. Finally, I just want to thank everybody uh, at the Houston Livestock Show and Rodeo. Uh, this we have gone through some tough times, but we're coming back. We're going to have a great 2021. We do want. Uh, we want everybody to be healthy. We want everybody to be safe out there. Continue to follow all the protocols that are in place. I want to thank you guys for all you do. At the end of the day, we're all in this together in terms of promoting agriculture and celebrating what we do. So doing great work. Thank you all very much. Thank you very much. Chris. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Bowman. To celebrate the 35th anniversary of the National Finals Rodeo in Las Vegas, LVE and PRCA present the top 35 most memorable moments. The 1986 National Finals Rodeo didn't start with a bang for steer wrestler Steve Duhon. The popular Cajun Cowboy didn't sniff a check in the first four rounds, but Thunder would shake the Thomas and Mack Center in round number five. Duhon has not had a good finals. Duhon backed in the box on the horse Jeff and Gary Green called Jimmy. And with Jeff on the hazing side, Duhon made history. Three seconds later, Duhon had won the round, set a new NFR steer wrestling record, and found the momentum he needed to win his first world championship. They ever let him have a check. Watch out, Las Vegas, and for the next five rounds, watch out. In fact, Duhon would win three steer wrestling world titles in a four-year stretch. And he was also the 1987 and 1993 NFR average champion. Duhon played football at Louisiana State University, but he proved to be an even bigger tiger at the Thomas and Mack. He was inducted into the Pro Rodeo Hall of Fame in 2003. Do you need a dose of social? A dash of insider info? Then the National Finals Rodeo Social Network is set up just for you. Get updates, insights, unique content, and much more on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. You can find us at Las Vegas NFR and be sure to use hashtag Wrangler NFR on your post and tweets. There's something for all rodeo fans. This is the NFR. This is Vegas. Hi, I'm 23-time world champion cowboy Trevor Brazil, and you're listening to NFR Extra. Our second guest today is Mr. Clinton Anderson from Down Under Horsemanship. The two-time road to the horse champion was born and raised in Australia. As a teenager, Clinton trained with the best, Gord McKinley, a horseman and clinician, and Ian Francis, a five-time national reigning horse association for charity champion. Clinton shares with us about his unique training method, down under horsemanship. 
He was the first clinician to create a made-for-TV horse training program that aired on RFD-TV and became the network's number one equine program. I'm looking forward to this. You can never go wrong with an Aussie who trains horses for a living. Welcome to NFR Extra, Clinton Anderson. How are you doing? I'm doing great, mate. How are you guys doing? Good. Just Very good. It's hot, it's hot down here in Texas, that's the damn sure. <laughs> yeah, I hear you. We're down here in Vegas. Nah, I mean, it's hot, but you gotta, you're right. you, you get used to it a little bit. But uh, yeah, I, I was looking at your guys' temps. You gotta... Oh, it's pretty humid down here. It's pretty humid down here, too. Oh, man. Uh, well, you know, hey, let's, uh, let's dive into um, what's going on. Well, first of all, you know, what, what have you been up to, just real quick before we dive into this question, what have you been into, what have you been doing during this whole thing? And during the whole coronavirus thing? Yes. Yes, just hanging out, really, just riding my horses. You know, that's my idea of vacation, to be honest. You know, I've been on the road so much for the last 25 years living out a suitcase in the hotel rooms you know me just staying at home and getting to ride my horses and sleeping in my own bed eating my own food is kind of like a vacation for me so uh, you know a lot of people haven't liked being on lockdown but I, i've kind of enjoyed it i've just stayed at home being a homebody how many horses do you have uh right now uh right now in the performance horse division we i keep about 15 in training i ride about seven or eight of them and then uh kristen hammaker she rides all the two-year-olds, and then I ride the three-year-old and older horses. So we have a pretty small operation, so not a real big barn. Do you take many outside horses at all, or everything that you have, is that just kind of from your horses and the direction you're going to go with them? Um, a little bit of yes and no, meaning that um, I don't take in outside horses, but I do buy horses for customers. So I don't own any of the horses that I train. But I'll, so the only way, like if you said, hey, how do you, how will you train a horse for me? I'll say, hey, you know, let's go buy a yearling. You let me pick it out. I'll buy it. You know, I tell them a budget for a cow horse is anywhere from 25000 to 40000 for a budget. You know, it's just a, a, an estimate. And uh, we'll go buy a yearling. I'll pick it out. You buy it and then put it in training with me and I'll train it for you. So, so I will, uh, you know, all the horses I own, I don't own anymore. I might have bought them privately myself or I have to sell them to a customer or most of the time the customer will come to me and just say, hey, let's go buy a yearling. So because I have a really small barn, I've got to be very particular about how many, what horses I take. Like if, if you're just going to take horses from the outside public, you know, the chances of finding a really good one is a, a general rule is relatively slim because you know, you're relying on people's judgment to, to send you something really bred, really good, put together good, etc. Where if I can go buy exactly what I want, I think I increase my odds of having a, a really well-bred, talented horse uh, tremendously. No guarantee, of course, but I think I increase the odds tremendously. Do you have a specific uh, bloodline that you kind of look at when you're looking for those horses? Something that, that you always, you know, is kind of your go-to or something that's hot or trendy or, you know, how do you, how do you look at that on the paper side of it? Uh, not really, not anything in particular. I, I just kind of try to uh, pay attention to um, uh, more than bloodlines, to be honest. I try and pay attention to confirmation and the way the horse is built and the way it moves and how athletic it is and those kind of things. You know, uh, papers are important, but I, I'm kind of the opposite of most people. Most people, like if most people walk into a field of yearlings, there could be 20 yearlings out there. They're going to ask the person that owns them, which are the best bred ones. They're going to, they're going to immediately say, which is the ones out of the mares that have won the most money, studs that have won the most money, et cetera. 
and then their eye is going to go straight to those particular yearlings. And then, you know, some of those yearlings may not be put together very good or conformationally wise. They may not be very good in a round pen, may not move good. But because they're bred, you know, really well, they kind of trick you. So I do the complete opposite. I walk into a yearling and, and out of 20 yearlings, I don't want to know how they're bred off the bat. I want to go look at them and then I'll pick out, you know, two, three, four of them that I, I like and then say, okay, how are those four bred? And, uh, and sometimes they're bred by, you know, the best of the group. And sometimes they may be mediocre bred, but I'd sure well prefer a horse that was built right and had the right confirmation and athletic ability that was a little weak on the, on the paper side than one that was real strong on the paper side that was confirmationally erect and, and not athletic and wouldn't suit what I want it to do. So by going in there and not knowing how they're bred, uh, you're kind of more um, favorable. Uh, you, you, you're not leaning a certain direction. You're not tricked a little bit, so to speak. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Kind of hard to write a piece of write on a piece of paper. Yeah, yeah. So, and again, sometimes the best bred ones, uh, obviously, um, are sometimes the best bred ones are the best ones put together. But a lot of the times they're not, to be honest with you. But because they're so well bred, you really want them to work. You know what I mean? So yeah. I, do, I do kind of the complete opposite of everybody else on that, on that regard. So you've got, I mean, obviously just talking about that, you definitely have an eye and a feel for horses. Is that something you grew up with uh, or how did you get into, you know, the, the training aspect of, of what created Clinton Anderson and down under horsemanship? Uh, well, I just, uh, you know, I, I grew up with horses as a kid, but I certainly didn't um, invent all the stuff that I know. I, I have two main mentors in Australia, a guy called Gordon McGinley and uh, I got another guy called Ian Francis. And basically everything that I know as far as training horses came from those guys. And, uh, you know, I might have rearranged some things. I basically took two guys' a horsemanship program and melted them together in one, which is what I called down under horsemanship or the method. So I didn't invent any of it, but I, but what I did do is give their, their, their training techniques, a structure and order and stuff like that. You know, uh, as far as picking horses and, and yearlings and all that kind of stuff, I learned a lot of that from a really, really good guy called Doug Carpenter. Uh, you know, he's picked more NRHA maturity champions and Cowboys champions than anybody. And so he taught me a, a lot about confirmation and picking horses and how to do it and buying them and all that kind of stuff. So, so that's where I learned all that from. Hey, Clinton, how did Al Dunning fit into your, this coming to the States and, and, where does he fit into your story? Uh, Al was one of the first horse trainers I worked for. And when I first came to America in like 1995, I worked for Al for about all oh, four or five months. Uh, and I enjoyed it. And then I went back to Australia. So he was, uh, and then I went back to Australia for about a year and then came back permanently from then on. So I worked for him for four or five months. I enjoyed my stay there. Real good guy. We've been remained friends all these years. And uh, so uh, he was a, a starting step, you know, in the beginning when I first came over here. Because, I mean, obviously, I don't know the difference on the on kind of the marketing side of you know, Australia and the United States, but I mean, understanding where there's money to be made at this point in time, you're still young, right? You're teenager at this point, like late teens, early. Uh, I'm, well, when I worked for Al, uh, I was probably about 20. Uh, I was probably about 19 or 20. When I worked for Al, maybe 20, and I think I came back to the States when I was 21, and I've been here ever since. I'm 45 now, 
Um, so I was pretty young in the beginning. Yes. Is it at that point where you're like, this is what's going to pay the bills is this is, this is, this is what Clinton's going to do for a living. Um, yes and no. It's kind of a weird story. I never wanted to be a clinician and teach people for a living. That was never my goal. I really wanted to be a horse trainer. Uh, and train reining horses. So that's really what I wanted to do is, is be a, a horse trainer per se. But, um, you know, I had to do lessons and I had to do some mini clinics and things to kind of pay the bills as you're going through the horse training deal. And uh, I was good at it. I, I, you know, I was good at it. I had a natural flair for it. People liked it. And then, you know, at one point, at some point in my career, I started making more money from giving lessons and, you know, clinics, mini, little mini clinics, two or three people showing up. And I started making more money from, from teaching than what I actually did training horses. So at some point I had to say, man, I got to kind of pick a fork in the road. You know, do I go and do what I really want to do that really doesn't make that much money? Or do I go where the money is, which was in the teaching and the cognition side of it. So uh, really, to be honest, I did, went and did the teaching. I had no, no desire to go do this as a full-time living. Uh, what, I, what I wanted to do was is just go do teaching for two or three years, save up some money, have enough money to buy two or three performance horses of my own, and then go out and train them and go back to showing again. But I kind of got on this treadmill for about 20 something years that, that once I got on it, I got so big, I couldn't get off it. So in the last 18 months, I basically retired from down under horsemanship. I still keep the business going and I still do four tours a year where about 1,200 people show up. Um, and I teach for two days, but they're the only public events I do. I do four two day tours uh, where people come in and watch for two days. So I don't, I, I don't do any other clinics, that kind of stuff. So now I pretty much do the performance horses uh, full time. But when I say full time, it's on a small scale. Like I said, we only keep about 15 horses in training. Uh, I, I don't have the same business model as a lot of horse trainers where they have, you know, anywhere from 25 to 50 horses in training. Um, you know, I don't want, I suppose what I'm trying to say is I don't want that rat race. I had that and down under horsemanship, you know, at, at our peak, we had 40 employees and all that kind of stuff. So I've been down that road and I don't want to do that now. You know what I mean? Well, it sounds like when you do that, also now you're becoming this business person and you get it, you're like, you're not getting to do what you really want to do. Right. Like just that, that takes away from that, which it sounds like. Yeah, it, it's just very stressful. I, you know, it already took away from me. I, I, like I said, when I started down under, I didn't want to be a clinician. I was good at it. I had a natural talent for it. Um, I had the gift of the gab, etc. Um, and people liked what I did. So I kind of fell into it. I didn't want to do it. So I went where the money was. So I, I never, you know, I'm not ashamed to say it. I did it for the money. You know what I mean? I could sit here and bullshit you guys and tell them I did it for the love of the horse, but that'd be all a crock of shit. I did it for the money. Mm. I was good at it. Just like anybody has a career. You may not like your career, but you got to pay the bills. You got to, you got to put food on the table. So that's what I did. But in my heart, I really wanted to be a horse trainer. What's funny now is, you know, 20 something years later, now that I'm theoretically a horse trainer again, I'm sure as hell glad I didn't take that path because there's, I sure as shit, there's no money in that industry. <laughs> yeah. When you were, when you were going and blowing and, and like full steam ahead with the down under horsemanship, uh, how many days and how many clinics would you be on the road and doing a year? About the first 10 years, I did on average about 45 weekend clinics a year. So I'd fly out on a Thursday, 
uh, night and then do a Friday, Saturday, Sunday clinic and fly home on Sunday uh, and then do it again the next weekend. So about the first 10 years, I lived on the road for about 45 weekends a year. The other weekends that I wasn't on the road, I was filming DVDs or TV shows or filming during the week. So it it, it was pretty hectic. I I wouldn't want to go do it, put it this way. If I would have known how hard the clinician route was going to be, I wouldn't have maybe picked it. But I was young enough and stupid enough to really not know the Mount Everest mountain I was about to climb, but I had no idea how big the damn thing was. Jeez. Yeah, that's so essentially all year long. You were going all year long. You're a slave. You're a carny. Yeah. That, that's what, that's what the, there's a lot of young guys that want to get in the clinician business and they see me and see the money I've made and so forth and they think it's easy. And what they don't understand is to be successful. Yeah, a lot of people thought that it was just getting on RFPC. If I just get on TV like Clinton, I can make it like Clinton. And what they don't realize is, you know, the TV at the time was important, but you have to be a carny. You've got to be Joe Dirt. You've got to live on the road. If you're not willing to live on the road and build a fan base and basically get your hands dirty, this thing's not going to work. So a lot of guys that tried to do what I did thought that they could do it by just marketing alone or, or you know, advertising. But you, you can't avoid being a carny. Now, I'm not a carny anymore because I built that business for 20 years. But to, to be successful, you have to live on the road because ultimately this is a people business. That's crazy, man. Yeah, that's everybody wants uh, wants your position until they figure out what it takes to play your part. And then it's like, oh, absolutely. Absolutely. You know, and, and, you know, and that's why I've been divorced twice. I'm 45. I've been divorced twice. I have no children. You pay a price for that. Who wants to be married to somebody they never see? You know what I mean? Who, who wants to have kids and their dad's never home? You get my drift? So, yeah. that, you know, you know, I, I, you know I, I, I live well now, but, but, you know, I paid a price for it. Make no mistake. You know, I had one guy walk up to me. I was at, at the uh, American Rodeo there probably four or five years ago, and I'd had a little bit to drink, and this guy was pretty plastered, and I went up to the bar to get a drink for a couple of buddies of mine, and this guy is pretty plastered, and he walks up to me, and he, he, say, he, he says, you're Clinton Anderson. I said, yeah, and he kind of pokes me in the chest, and he says, you're one lucky son of a bitch, and I said, oh, really? And he said, yeah, there's other people that can do what you can do. And they're better than you. And you're not that good. And, and, and I looked at him and I said, yeah, you're right. There's actually a lot of people a lot better than me. But what they weren't prepared to do is they weren't prepared to work as hard as me. They weren't prepared to take as many chances as me. They weren't prepared to live on the road like I did. So if you think I got luck, you can shove that luck right up your ass. You know what I mean? Yeah. And uh, I hadn't been in a fist fight in a long time as a kid. But I had just enough to drink where I had my wits about me. And I thought to myself, if I get in a fist fight with this guy right here, there'll be a million cell phones out and a million videos all over the internet. I'm going to lose sponsors. And I said, you know what? I'm just going to walk away from this drunk and let this be. But it got under my skin when he said, you're one lucky son of a bitch. If what I did was luck, you can take luck and stick it up your ass. Man, that, 100%. I, Clint, I want to add to that because, you know, you hear – when you, I'm going to give you kind of like a, like of an analogy when you talk about guys like Steph Curry, these champions in NBA and they look at them, they're all having a good time when they're in competition. But, but the stories that they don't hear about is a guy like Steph Curry before and after games or, or on his off time, he's actually shoot. He's, he's in the gym for three, four hours, thousands of shots all over the place to get that repetition and then that hard work. And 
the one thing that we don't somehow put talent to, and I think you're alluding to this right now, is the consistency of the hard work that you put into it. It's just hard work is talent. You know, we're talking to Chris Cox earlier and, and talk about the, the road of the horse competition. How was that for you? You know, obviously here you're, you're chiming through, you get into the new millennium. Uh, you had your down under horsemanship. How was that 03 and 05 championship? What did that do for your career as far as uh, the marketing of what you do? I mean, I, clearly it helped, but I mean, can you expand a little more with what the impact that was? And not that you were lucky, but that you worked hard and, and worked. Yeah. Yeah, uh, I, I do that just a second, but I want to add something there. What, my mentor, Ian Francis, he has a, a little saying that I have at the bottom of all my emails. He says, if you want something bad enough, you'll find a way. If you don't, you'll find an excuse. And I live by that. And the other thing, quote, that he says, is he, Ian Francis says, he says, the harder I walk, the luckier I seem to get. You know yeah. what I mean? So that kind of goes with the last one. But uh, as far as Road to the Horse goes, um, you know, it was good for marketing, but it it certainly didn't define um, my career or or was a major part of it. Like, like I'll give you an example. Uh, Dan James, he's a good mate of mine and a, and a really good, talented horseman, another Aussie guy, very talented horseman, good guy, uh, extremely good hand with a horse, etc. I have a lot of respect for him. Well, I was at the road to the horse the first year he won it. I can't remember what year it was. And somebody walked up to me and said, man, that Aussie guy, Dan, he did a really good job. He's really good. And I said, yes, he's awesome. And he said, he, this guy said to me, he said, are you worried about him being your competition? And I looked at him and said, nope. I said, it takes a lot more than winning one road to the horse to be Clinton Anderson. And I don't mean to be an arrogant prick about it, but that was the truth. It takes a lot more than just winning one event to build a career. That, that was just one. Look at road to the horse like one tiny brick on a wall of about a thousand bricks. That's in perspective, that's kind of what Road to the Horse was. It's one brick and a, and a wall of a thousand bricks. So Dan James is an extremely talented individual, but I'm sure if you ask him, you know, did Road to the Horse change his entire career? And I, I'll bet money he'll say no. It was a, you know, it helps, but there's a lot more that goes into it to being a clinician and a successful one for a long time than what winning one event. Doesn't matter what event it is, really, to be honest. Yeah, that's, that's crazy. And, it, you know, you look at how many times they've had road to the horse and, and it's not like a new superstar pops up after every time. Let's take a break with Clinton Anderson from Down Under Horsemanship. And when we return, problem horses, hard work is talent and more. In 2020, more than 7,000 kids will compete for the coveted 750 spots at the Junior World Finals in Las Vegas, presented by Yeti. Each qualifier will go head-to-head for more than a half a million dollars in a championship buckle in the biggest rodeo youth event in the country. This could be the first stop on the road to a pro rodeo car in a gold buckle in Vegas. Find out how your son or daughter can earn the right to compete against the best at the Junior World Finals, presented by Yeti. Hi, I am Benny Butler, and you're listening to NFR Extra. We are here with Clinton Anderson from Down Under Horsemanship. Clinton Anderson is a horse trainer, clinician, and competitor who works hard to educate horse owners on how to be safe and effective while enjoying their horses. His training method is instructional, inspiring, and innovative. One one thing, um, you know, you've got a lot of your Down Under Horsemanship available on YouTube. Uh, for people to watch. And one thing that, that I kind of see a lot of, um, or, or multiple uh, topics on are like problem type horses. So it's like mm-hmm. horses bucking, kicking, biting, aggressive on the ground, whatever that is. Um, is there ever like, where's the point to where if somebody brings you a horse, like 
yeah, Clinton Anderson can, can make this horse do this. But like you look at the situation with the horse and the person and you're like, let's work through this or this just isn't even the right, right setup. Like we need to do something different. You mean to film it or just for me to help somebody? What, just, just you for mean you. A- yeah, just for you helping somebody. Like when somebody comes up like, hey, I've got this horse and, you know, it's one of those problem horses and uh-huh. you can get by on that horse. But when is the point where you look at a situation and I mean, you got to be honest with a person, you know, like, hey, this horse might not be right for you or whatever. Like, Yeah, I, I've always been like that. You know, when I in, in Australia, I used to be a professional horse trainer. And when I came to America, in, in essence, I became a professional people trainer. OK. And um, so so I mainly taught people to try to fix their own horses. So I didn't once I got to America, I didn't do a lot of training of problem horses per se myself. I might have filmed with them and demonstrated with them. I did tons of that type of stuff. But as far as somebody sending us a horse, we used to have a thing at the ranch called an academy horse program where when I was training a lot of apprentices, people could send their horse to the ranch for six weeks training. And a third of the horses would be green broke colts. A third of them never had a saddle on their back. And a third of them were horses like you just described, where they're extremely problematic horses. They've been through four or five horse trainers. And if we didn't fix them, they either became pasture ornaments or they had to be put down. So we got a third of those horses. So the majority of the time, I'd say 90% of the time with the method and me overseeing it, we could fix those real bad problem horses. Probably about 10% of the time, I would just call the owner and say, listen, we can fix this horse. I can fix this horse. But it's not if he's going to revert back to doing the bad behavior he did. It's just when. It might take 30 days. It might take six months. It might take a year. But unless you're prepared to have a really high maintenance situation here where you have to work with this horse six seven days a week uh he is going to revert you know some you know every problem is always somewhat fixable but the question is is how much maintenance does it take to fix that to keep that problem from coming back so i kind of say it's like a you know it's like an axe murderer once they get a taste for blood you know once the horse has bucked somebody off four or five times and and they've got away with it four or five times it's not a game anymore. They're, they're very yeah. conscious about what they're doing. They know when you're right about hour three in the trail ride and your guard's down and you're relaxed and they stick it up your ass, you can't hardly fix that because it's premeditated. You know, the horse that just starts bucking because he's fresh or the saddle's too tight or something's wrong, that's what I call an honest problem horse. But the ones that are what I call premeditated, where they know they shouldn't be doing it, they know they won't get away with it with a, with a horseman that they respect, but they'll just wait to that, that non-real good leader or non-good horseman has got their guard down and then they stick it to them. You can't hardly fix that horse because that horse knows the taste of blood, so to speak. He knows how to get away with it. He knows he's calculated. And because that horse may never do it with me for the next 10 years, but sure as hell, I'll sell him, not sell him, but he'll go to somebody that's inexperienced and he'll, it's not if he's going to go back and do it, it's just when. So a lot of the the 10% of the horses that I would just call and tell the owners, I don't think it's worth the money putting into it. And then I'd let them make the call. If I still wanted to go on with the horse, I'd say, sure. No problem at all. I'd make them put it in writing that I've been honest with them, upfront with them. I'd make them sign a little contract that says, I've been forthcoming, told you the pros and cons. You've still chose to go along with it. It's your business. You know what I mean? But, but you know, so if I don't think 
the horse can at least my my goal was if I couldn't sell the if you couldn't sell the horse the day you got it home from me and at least get what money you spent with me back out of it, it was a waste of time training. Yeah, if you got ten grand in training and the second you get the horse home, you can barely get five grand for it. That's stupid. That's upside yeah. down. Hey, Clint, I got a question for you. So I have a weird mixed dog at home, right? And this is kind of, and I'll transfer real quick over this, but uh, big dog, half German Shepherd, half pocket pit. He's a weird looking dude, 90 pounds, love him. Well, we try to get him trained, right? And I took him to a canine trainer that uh, t- uh, trains here in town for our, our Metro officers. And he had a tough time with him. Well, anyways, when I met this guy, he, he gave me a story about where he would go and get his resources to, to be a better trainer for the, the canine dogs. He went to Germany and worked with this little old lady, he said, that trained these giant German shepherds that had been doing this in the lineage of forever in their family. Uh, hundreds of years, he said. And he learned so much from her of this, this kind of natural ability to train the canines. My question to you, like in that kind of reference, as you are now, do you, do, every teacher, everyone, it's not coach, we all still need more learning. Do you, do you have other resources to what you do today? I mean, do you? With other yeah, one of my mentors, Ian Francis, he's still alive. Like he's won the Rainham Futurity in Australia five times, won the National Cut in Futurity twice, etc. So I still fly him over to America at least twice a year to ride my horses, tell me what he thinks. And I videotape, you know, when he comes over three or four days, I'll have a professional video guy come in. So I've got hundreds of hours of him riding my horses, telling me what he likes, what he doesn't like, what he changed. So I constantly watch those videos. They're just for my own private use. I've never put them out to the public. So I watch them every day, at least an hour of them every day. And then in addition to that, uh, anytime I can go ride with other trainers in the industry that I'm trying to focus on, um, a lot of trainers are very open to swap information and they'll trade information. And uh, there's not a lot of hiding it. I, I, you know, that might've happened years ago, but information now was very much traded freely, especially between trainers and peers where you'll go over and, and, you know, you'll, you'll, if I ask a question, you'll happily answer it. If, you know, they'll help you, you help them, that type of stuff. So I think you're always trying to add your program where you can, you have a basic foundation of how you like to get things done. And, and you can't always copy somebody exactly, but what you can do is take a few ideas and concepts that they, they do and, and mold it into something that works for your personality. It's just, it's fascinating to hear you talk and kind of, where do you get your resources? And I love- uh, Well, I always try, you know, I always try to study who's winning. Whoever's the top of your game, it doesn't matter what game you're in, study who's at the top of the game. And then find out what they have for breakfast, find out what they have for lunch, find out what time to go to bed. Like, I mean, you study the competition to know what they are, okay? And, and, and that's when you're first learning an industry. Does that make sense? And, and Ian Francis always says this, like in Australia, when you go to a horse show, they have what they call a secretary's box where let's say you win the event, you go up to the secretary's box at the end of the horse show and she'll give you a check for your win. Well, he has a little saying, he says, when I get to the secretary's box and I'm not looking at the back of somebody's head, I keep doing exactly what I'm doing, which means if I get to the line and I'm the first guy in the line where I get the number one check, I'm not going to, I'm going to keep doing exactly what I'm doing. If I get to the secretary's box and I look at, I'm looking at the back of somebody's head, which means I got beat, I might start asking a few questions. What have I got to change? What have I got to add? Maybe I just had a little bad luck at this horse show. Maybe I don't need to change anything, but just my horse wasn't quite good enough. You know what I mean? So 
you know, there's a lot to be said about that too, is, is find the guys that are successful and find every person in, in any industry. I've always found this. Every person in the horse industry does one thing exceptionally well, better than everybody else. And so I try to copy whatever they're doing that is exceptionally good. And then whatever they suck at or whatever they're not very good at or whatever they're weak at, I avoid all those things. So even your enemies do one, if you're honest, do one thing exceptionally well. And so try to take that one thing and be even better at it and then avoid the pitfalls of everything else they do wrong. Your advice is very applicable to just about anything. Well, it's like, you know, I got into shooting a lot the last few years, pistol shooting, and I watch a lot of YouTube videos on it. And uh, uh, there was some world champion pistol shooter, and, and, and he said on this YouTube video, he says, everybody asks me what it takes to be a world champion. And he says, it's easy. It's, it's very simple to be a world champion. And the guy says, well, what is it then? He said, it's easy. Just be the first one to show up on the gun range in the morning and the last one to leave in the evening. <laughs> yeah. And that's it. It, it, that's the, that, and it, it, I laugh when he said it because in theory, it's extremely simple what he said to be a world champion, but nobody wants to follow through with the, with the practical part, which is be the first one on the gun range. So, so I'll be the first to tell you, my competition are much better horsemen than me. Everybody that I beat in the clinician world, I'll be the first to say, I'm not the best clinician. I'm not the best horseman. Where, where did I beat my competition? I outworked them. If I did a 12-hour day, I did a 16-hour day. If I did 10 tours a year, I did 20 tours a year. I, I knew I couldn't beat them on talent, so I had to beat them on other areas where I was more stronger. Does that make sense? So I just I outworked yeah. them until they all gave up. You know, so, so I knew my weakness, so I said, okay, there's my weakness. Here's their weakness. I'll go exploit that weakness. So I just outworked them. So, when, you know, getting back to the gun range, you know, everybody thinks it's a special gun and it's a special technique and a special bullet. They want to purchase the secret to be a world champion. What you can't purchase is the 14 hours, seven days a week for years on end, sacrificing Christmas, Thanksgiving, birthdays, you know, all that kind of stuff. And, and being there doing the gun range, just shooting, shooting, shooting. What, uh, what kind of pistol are you shooting? I like a Wilson Combat. Um, I, I, I have a Wilson Combat 45, and I really enjoy that. I like Wilson Combat guns. And then I, um, I'm just starting to get into uh, kind of sniper rifles and long-range shooting as well. I'm, I'm still pretty green at it, but yeah. I enjoy it. I enjoy learning about it. And, uh, you know, it's, YouTube, what's funny to me is YouTube is such a resource now for anything in the world. Like, I... You know, if you want to learn how to change the damn oil in your in your Honda four wheeler, just type in changing the oil on a 1984 Honda uh, Honda four wheeler, and sure as shit, somebody's on there showing you how to change the oil. It's crazy what's on there, right? Yeah, no kidding. It's actually to me, it's almost more valuable than Google. Oh, oh. add to that real quick. So my dad had passed away. He was kind of off the beaten path, but this fits this. Uh, he had an old um, 81 Honda uh, Civic, basically, and it was. It was the ones that came from Japan. This is when Honda first came here. And I was working on it after he'd passed away to change out the alternator, right? And I jump on YouTube. And um, I, the, the guy that was showing the, 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 the schematic was just wasn't fit. And I was like, man, the alternator's not there. Well, then there was another video where the guy was like, oh, by the way, there was two different Hondas. One built in the States and the other one built in Japan. And oddly enough, the alternator was a completely different one from where it was built in Japan. And walked you through it. I think it was like a 30-minute video. Boom, boom, boom. Done. I was like, God damn. 
you couldn't have had that stuff 20 years ago. No, it, it's, it's, it's amazing um, what you can learn. My partner, Kristen, she was the one that put me onto it. She's, she's a lot younger than me. I'm 45. She's 30. And when I met her four years ago, she was the one that taught me about, you know, as far as, you know, I always knew about YouTube and so forth, but I had no idea, like, YouTube is literally for anything. If you typed in how to brush your teeth, YouTube's got it. I mean, anything you could imagine is on there. You know, we have over 300 training videos on there as well. So YouTube's an extremely powerful marketing thing for me, and it's free. I use it it's all over the world. Hey, real quick, how do they find you on YouTube? Just uh, since people are listening. They just type in Clinton Anderson or they type in Problem Horse. You know, I've kind of dominated the YouTube deal for the clinician deal. So most of the time when you type in any problem horse keywords, and I do a lot of advertising on YouTube and Google. So if you type in hardly, you know, problem horse, training horse, you know, rearing, you, t- uh, you know, I've got a bunch of keywords that we've identified. If you type that in, you'll usually come across my videos. Good. Cool. So that, especially with that, like with your presence on, um, social media on videos on uh you know television platforms that you have a substantial amount of um, products that you endorse and that that sponsor you are those like products that you are say it again i wouldn't say extensive i probably have five or six main sponsors now that have been with me for years that i endorse their products and encourage people to buy them but i don't I don't, uh, how do I say it? I don't make my living off sponsorship, if that off makes that. sense. Yeah, no, that's yeah. kind of what I was getting at is like these products that, that we see you endorsing. That's like, hey man, this is something that Clinton Anderson uses and this is like legit stuff. Yeah, yeah. I could have a lot more sponsors uh, if I was willing to put my name on anything, but I there's so much junk out there just to be quite honest. So, you know, I could probably have at least... 20 more sponsors if I was willing to sell my soul to the devil and, and, and put my name on any piece of crap out there. Uh, and, and here's, and here's what'll happen when you do that. Okay. When you do that, you make a lot more money up front, but you destroy in time. It's not if, but in time you destroy your credibility and you need, you, then you can never get it back again. It, it's kind of like this. Like my, I have an advertising firm that I work with for about the last 10 years and the guy that uh, owns the business, he said to me one day, he said, Clinton, great marketing will only prolong the demise of a bad product. So if you have a bad product, but you have exceptional marketing, that product will still eventually fail and, and go out of business. But it'll, it'll take a lot longer for that to happen because you have great marketing. Okay, now if you have great marketing and you have a great product, well, now you'll see the test of time. You'll keep going and going you know, theoretically forever, as long as you keep your marketing fresh and you don't sell out and, and, and align yourself with crappy products. Yeah, that's good. I, I like that. That's fantastic. <laughs> Are there yeah, certain bits along the demise of a bad product? Absolutely. Are there certain bits and saddles that you try to lean towards? Well, I've been with Martin Saddlery now for about 20 years. They make the saddles that I use uh, for my method horses down under, which is kind of like a half-breed Australian saddle, Western saddle. So they make a phenomenal saddle. And then I also use Martin Saddles for like straight-up Western saddles for cow horse and reining saddles as well. So they're the saddles that I've been using for 20 years. Here's a question, because you seem to have things mapped out and or kind of evolve with, with the times. What's in the future for you? Like, what are some goals, plans that you kind of have laid out or have been thinking about as you keep going forward here? 
You know, I um, my goal is um, my first goal to be honest is kind of to enjoy the second half of my life. You know what I mean? I I kind of figure this out in life. I think you have two choices in life. You either work, you either party the first half of your life, so drugs, sex, and rock and roll, till you're about forty five, fifty. And enjoy the first half. And then when you get to about 45, 50, you realize you got no money. You're absolutely broke. You have no savings. You have no retirement. And you will literally have to walk to the day you drop dead. You will not be able to stop working to the day you drop over dead. Or you do the opposite, which is what I did, is you walk your ass off for the first half of your life which is not a lot of fun. It's 14-hour days, six, seven days a week. You sacrifice a lot. You save your money, save your money, save your money. And then hopefully when you get to 45, 50, you can somewhat retire and then, you know, screw off the second half of your life and enjoy it. So my first goal, to be honest with you, is to maybe enjoy the next 25 years a hell of a lot more than what I did the first 25. So that's my first goal is to, to not... To not uh, not, you know, do the excessive hours that I did for, to building down under. And then the second goal is I just want to enjoy my performance horses and, and be competitive. You know, um, I'm, I train reining horses and cow horses. And I, this is only my second year of doing it as a, as a full-time living. You know, it doesn't make any money as a business model. It's a terrible business model. You know, it's funny, for 20 years, I, I kind of resented a little bit of down under. I resented it because I really wanted to be a horse trainer and compete. And it's funny, in the last year and a half since I've been a horse trainer and I've financially broken out this division as its own set of financials, and now I'm like, holy shit, I'm sure as hell glad I didn't be, wasn't a horse trainer for the last 20 years because, you know, I'm not saying you can't make a living, but that's all you're doing is barely making a living training horses. So I do it now for fun. Does that make sense? I don't ride 15 horses a day. I, I ride between seven and nine horses a day, which is plenty. I want to have the weekends off and enjoy what I'm doing. So I, I may not be as competitive as I'd maybe like to be, but I also know I, I'm old enough now and got enough bloody noses on the playground to figure this out. If you want to be number one at anything, I don't give a rat's ass what it is, any sport you name, okay, if you want to be number one, you, it has to consume you. It has to be your entire life. You've got to wake up thinking about it. You've got to go to bed thinking about it. You've got to put it uh, uh, in front of family, friends, uh, weekends, public holidays. Like, it, it's got to consume you. And, and when, it, when something consumes you that much, there's other parts of your life that just erode. That's, let's just be honest. Like I said, I've been married twice. I have no kids. You know, I, I paid a price for that building down under. So I, I, now that I kind of know that there's a, an edge to the cliff, I'm not willing to go do that again with my performance horses. I want to be competitive and I want to enjoy it, but I'm not going to do it for 14 hours a day, six days a week and let it consume me like I did down under because I don't want to get burnt out doing the horses. I enjoy it. It's fun for me. And I want to be doing this 30 years from now. And the quickest way to get burnt out doing something is do it for 14 hours a day, seven days a week for about a decade and you'll hate it. Jeez. It's a long way to the top if you want to rock and roll, right? Yeah, it doesn't matter what you want to do, it has to consume you. So so now that I'm a little older and wiser, I realize that now. So now I'm just happy with being, you know, I'd like to be competitive. I'm, you know, sure, I'd like to win like everybody else, but I'm not going to go to the extremes that you have to do to be not, to be extremely competitive because to do that, it's literally got to run your life. 
you know, you've got to have 30, 40 horses in training. You've got to have three or four assistants. You've got to have four, you know, three or four groomers and, and, and stall cleaners. And it turns into a factory. And again, I've, I've lived that life for 25 years of down under. I, I know what that takes. And I just don't want to do it again. Plus, especially in this industry in horse training, there's no money in this game at all. You know, you might make 50 grand a year. That, that's, that's just making a, barely making a living as far as I'm concerned. So th- if it was an industry where you could make millions, I might turn my head a little bit. But to make the kind of money you can make training horses for a living and, and doing that deal, uh, I don't. I, I, you, to do all the headaches that come with it to be number one, you couldn't pay me a billion dollars to go do it. Uh, so out of that passion of love that you're doing now for the competition side of it and those seven to what you said, seven to nine horses that you've got, is there one or maybe two of those horses that, that kind of get your motor running that you're excited about? Yeah, there's one in particular, his name's Hulk. I've got a whole YouTube series about this horse right now. Like I did that Titan YouTube series several years ago and that horse, uh, got real famous and went on to do real well. So I'm doing another one around another horse. His name's Hulk. He's a cow horse. He's a bimetallic cat out of a dual ray mare. And I really like that horse. And, and, but then that's the thing about the horses. He's an exceptional one, but all the horses I ride, I really enjoy all of them, to be honest with you. And that's the, that, that's the, that's the key to what I'm doing because I don't take horses for the outside public. I'm not riding the crappy ones that I don't want, I don't enjoy. Like when you're a public horse trainer and you're making your living from this, if somebody calls you up and wants to send you a horse, as long as they theoretically pay their bill, theoretically, you don't care what they send you. You've got to take it because you, you've got to eat. Well, the advantage of me being retired now and working hard for what I've done, I don't have to do that anymore. So I'm very picky about what I ride. So first of all, I've got to buy it. So if I'm going to buy it, there's no guarantee it's going to for sure make it, but I sure as hell have summed it up that it is a 70% chance it's going to make a pretty nice horse if I'm picking it, buying it, betting it, etc. So, so and, and, if, and on the odd time that it doesn't work out or I don't like the horse, I just fire it and, and it gets sold. So I'm not, I refuse to do something that I consider to be fun and enjoyable. I don't want to go to the barn and ride a horse that me and them just butt heads every day. Our personalities don't click. There's a, there's a lot of horses that are talented, but for whatever reason, they don't like me. I don't like them. And every trainer has that. I'm not too scared to admit that. I'd rather send that horse with talent to a trainer that maybe that trainer's style will fit that horse. I'm a big believer. Don't, don't try to you know, hit a square peg into a round hole. You know what I mean? Find the horses that fit right, the right trainers and vice versa. Well, man, Clint, this is, geez, man, I, we're, we're kind of texting back and forth. We'd love to go get a beer with you at some point, man. You're just. <laughs> well, believe it or not, I quit drinking like three months ago. <laughs> oh. <laughs> I always used to have this joke. I'd say on tour, I'd say, you know, in Australia, I used to be a professional people trainer. And when I came to America, I became, I, I'm sorry. I used to say in Australia, I used to be a professional horse trainer. And when I came to America, I became a professional people trainer with a drinking problem. Uh-huh. And, uh, you know, get, get a bit of a laugh and everything. And the, 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 the reason why everybody would chuckle, because it was kind of true, I did have a drinking problem. And uh, about three months ago, I quit drinking. And, uh, and it's been great. I, I haven't missed it at all. It's been really good. I don't regret drinking at all. I had a lot of fun times. Did a lot of stupid shit, too. But I had, uh, I had a lot of fun times. But I, I was drinking too much. But uh, it was fun. 
All good. Well, hey, this has been, man, this is a lot of fun. This was a, this was a great interview for us. <laughs> I hope it was as good for you as it is. It... Yeah, it's fun. It's always enjoyable talking to people. So what did your podcast do, guys? Uh, what's that? What does your podcast do? You know, what kind of people do you have on it? So we, so it, it, it wraps around the, let's just say a 360 view of the rodeo business, which focuses on the national finals rodeo in December. Right. And, you know, we bring on guests that really define all of the business. That's why you're an important piece of this, because you're part, uh, when we talk about the NFR, one of the most marquee parts about the NFR is horsemanship. And, yeah. you know, when you start to think about that, we can back into a million different conversations with the rodeo business, whether it be ranching, farming. I mean, it's just, it, it goes for, for endless, even country music, just however way you want to define it. Uh, this podcast tries to touch on all those aspects and, and, and meet individuals like you and cross over. You know, there could be young rodeo guys that uh, listen to our podcast that all of a sudden get introduced to you. And once again, YouTube, et cetera, et cetera. You just, it's this big network that we're, we're um, we've been kind of chiming away here over the past year with out of our extra. And um, yeah, I just said, uh, and you're, you're definitely one of them. I mean, we've had some interesting people on here and you You've been added. To well, the- congratulations, then. I, I wish you guys the bed, best with your podcast. And I've been to the NFR several times. It's a great rodeo and and uh, great show. And, and and I hope it continues this year with the coronavirus getting put to bed. Hopefully, everybody's lives will get back to normal. Yeah, I agree. Well, uh, thank you for coming on, uh, Steve. Brian, you guys got anything for Clinton? I'm thank good, buddy. Us. Yeah, that was awesome, man. Appreciate oh, you. Okay, no worries, guys. Cheers to you both, and uh, I hope you guys have a great second half of the year. Well, that's it, and we hope you enjoyed this episode as much as we did. And we want to say thanks to Dr. Chris Bowman and Clinton Anderson for joining us on NFR Extra today. And stay tuned for episode 52, when we have three-time bareback world champ Tim O'Connell for our Rodeo is Life segment on NFR Extra. Want to experience more of the NFR? Then visit nfrexperience.com. And we invite you to subscribe to NFR Extra on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, or wherever you're listening right now. If you like what you've been hearing on NFR Extra, we would love it if you gave us a five-star rating and tell your friends how to subscribe. All dirt. All rodeo. All year. Gotta make it out to Vegas, where the big boys roam, with the rovers and the racers and the bulls and the browns, and the ladies in the skin-tight ringers and the cowboy hat.